John chapter 11, please. That's where we're going to be as we finish up John, John 11 this morning. You know, we're, we're all familiar by now with the books and the movies that record all the purported stories of the afterlife. You know, what happens when you die and, and what is heaven like? And we want to hear from those folks who've been there and back again, to borrow a term from Tolkien and The Hobbit. And those things are bestsellers for a reason, right? Because there's something universally enticing, whether you're spiritual or not spiritual at all, there's something enticing, there's something alluring to want to know what's on the other side. Is there a heaven? And if there is, what is it like? What happens there? Now, I find it interesting that none of these books or movies about the afterlife talk about going to hell and back. I have, still can't find that one. I guess those don't sell quite as well, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, shall we say. Well, what's interesting is that last week we looked at the, the greatest miracle in all of Scripture outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is the resurrection of Lazarus. And Lazarus, remember, had, had not been gone four, four, four minutes or, or 40 minutes, or four hours, or even 40 hours, Lazarus was super dead for like four days. And I know some of you, after the sermon last week, had, had a lot of these sorts of questions, like, what happened to Lazarus? Where did he go? What did he do? When he, went, when he was in heaven, were they, they tell him, don't get comfy, bud? Okay, you're heading right, heading right back down. What was it like? Tell us, Lazarus. Now, here's what I find astounding about this narrative of Lazarus. In nowhere in chapter 11, including our passage this week, nowhere in chapter 12, when we do see Lazarus again as he's alive and feasting with his family, not once does John record anything about any of that. Lazarus is kind of like an afterthought. You would think the disciples would have questions and they would, you know, you know, heaven, the heaven version of trivial pursuit, and they're sitting around the table and they're trying to guess what it was really like and to mine him for information, but there's nothing, nada. It's sort of theological crickets when it comes to this issue. And I think that kind of communicates something to us. It communicates something about this disinterest from John. You see, for the Apostle John in writing this gospel, there is a more urgent higher priority than what it's going to be like being with Jesus when you're dead, although that's a worthy topic and we can look at that at some other point in time. That's not John's concern here. John's concern is not what's it going to be like being with Jesus when you're dead. His concern is what's it going to be like for you being with Jesus while you're alive? How are you going to respond to this amazing work of grace and of life-giving that Jesus performs. That's the concern of this passage. It's our concern this morning. So I invite you to stand as we read this portion of Scripture. It's a, it's a little bit shorter than some of the other narrative sections we've been reading. This is sort of the aftermath. What happens after this amazing miracle? Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. 
we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may take your seats. The title of this message is Sin substitution, and the sovereignty of God. And those are going to actually be our three points. Sin, substitution, and sovereignty. If you, if you have your Bibles open or your tablets or what have you, look back to, to last week's passage, verses 25 and 26. And remember that we said that these two verses assign the specific meaning for why Jesus did this miracle. In other words, Jesus never did miracles for the sake of, as a naked show of power or to, or to merely gather a crowd. John calls them signs, these miracles signs, for a reason. And the reason is that they are meant to communicate something fundamentally about the character of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And we said sort of the money statement behind last week, the reason that Jesus raised Lazarus is found in verses 25 and 26. Let's read that again. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he ends with this question to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And, and that's the question that John has for us this morning. The miracle of Lazarus is not one that we stand peering at from afar, from an academic sort of perspective, from the ivory tower. No, no, John says, what are you going to do with this? This passage today shows us what two groups of people did with this miracle. And the first is found in verse 45. It says that many at the funeral believed and trusted. In other words, they saw what he did. The miracle was so compelling, the evidence so overwhelming, that they were compelled to turn and believe and trust in and follow Jesus Christ. However, as verse 46 and following tells us, there was another group, another group of Jews I call these the Cindy Bradys of the mob, okay? The tattletales, all right? Now, to call them tattletales or narcs does a disservice to tattletales everywhere because there was nothing innocent about this. There was a group of, of Jews who knew the Pharisees were looking for Jesus. They knew they were trying to pin him down. 
They knew that when they found him, they wanted to kill him. And so when they go and seek out the Pharisees to tell him where, what Jesus has done and where he is, they have clearly malicious, murderous intent. They, they know where this is going. In fact, this in fact is where it goes. Because Jesus is dead not seven, eight, nine days later from this passage. So in response to this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees convened a gathering called the Sanhedrin. It's sort of, sort of like our Supreme Court. It was the Supreme Court of the Jews. And just like we don't do take spurious cases of the Supreme Court unless they're just of utmost critical legal importance, neither did the Sanhedrin just gather just to hang out. Okay? These guys weren't necessarily particularly friendly with each other. In fact, there was opposing factions of political parties But yet what unified them was their hatred of Jesus. And we find out in verse 48 what in part is motivating them to get together to put an end to this Jesus issue once and for all. Look at verse 48. I'm going to read it. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, the, the, the religious leaders had a little cozy relationship with Rome. It was a little quid pro quo, and it went something like this. Hey, religious leaders, we'll let you run the temple. We'll let you do your Jewish thing. We'll let you have sway over the people, judge your own cases. We'll leave you alone. Just be quiet. Just be peaceful. No, no shenanigans. No revolts. No, riot, no riots. No uprisings. Keep everything on an even kill. And we know that the history of the Roman occupation was filled with times when that wasn't the case. When there was a messianic fervor, or there was a, 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 somebody leading this particular revolt or that particular revolt, which would necessitate the Romans coming in and crushing the people like a grave. In fact, we do know this is exactly what happened 40 years after this incident, when Jerusalem and the temple were leveled to the ground. So this is, this is not a spurious fear. This is, this is in, in many ways, is a legitimate fear and concern that these leaders had. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I want to mention it again because I think it's particularly important. Notice in this whole passage, John 11, John 12, actually the whole gospel of John, the Jewish leaders never dispute this miracle. Not one time do they say, well, this was just hocus pocus, or this was, allu- this, this was just some sort of illusion. This was, this was some sleight of hand, some trick. Never, never, never did they dispute the miracle. In fact, you can tell from this text, they know good and well that it happened. It, the evidence is overwhelming. It is crystal clear. Yet, instead of worshiping Jesus, they want to kill him. It's just maddening when you think about it. The clearest of all proofs. It couldn't, it couldn't be any clearer. They could see the miracle. It was right in front of their eyes. How can this be? You know, we're at the point of our, of our parenting where we're introducing our children to the classic movies of the 80s. And there were many classic movies of the 80s. And we've kind of worked our way up now to Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. And if this is spoiler alert, um, you're like 35 years too late. But nonetheless, Kevin Costner is a man named Ray who's a farmer in Iowa, and he, and he farms corn. And just like 
farmers in Iowa do, he began to hear voices out in the field. And this voice told him, what was it? Build it, and they will come. Build what? Well, he ends up, if you know the story, he builds this baseball diamond in the middle of this Iowa cornfield, and all his neighbors, everybody thinks he's crazy, particularly his brother-in-law. But after Kevin Costner constructs this field, interestingly enough, indeed, they start coming. And by they, I mean dead baseball players, okay? Baseball players who had broken dreams, who who were banished from the game, guys like Shoeless Joe Jackson and, and others. And it becomes sort of this magical place where guys come to have their dreams fulfilled on the baseball field. But all the while, the farm is languishing. And his brother-in-law can't understand why he's not selling the farm, can't understand why he's built a baseball diamond for heaven's sake. And there's this poignant scene where all these baseball players are having this game. Ray's brother-in-law, Kevin Costner, shows up and says, Ray, you're about to lose the farm. Can't you see this? Can't you see this? And and, and Ray is like, "But, but can't you see this? Look at these players, look at, these, look at this field, look at this game. It's all happening before your very eyes. But if you saw the movie, you know this, he couldn't see it. And the reason he couldn't see it is because he didn't want to see it. See, there was money tied up in that land. There was a deal to be made. There was an investment to be had. There was profits to be cashed. And in a lot of ways... That is what's going on in this gospel. It's it's a picture of unbelief. See, we have to remember that sin is not merely a mistake. Sin is not missing the mark on a target, although it's all that. Sin is fundamentally an inability, an unwillingness to see life as it truly is under the sovereign rule and care of God. And sin is rebellion against that. See, the nature of unbelief that we see in this passage is that the religious leaders, they couldn't see it because they didn't want to see it. There was just too much at stake. Too much at stake to acknowledge Jesus for who he was. Look back at verse 48. It gives us a clue about this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away. Now listen to this. The Romans will come and take away both what? Our place, our nation. See, when, when, you, when you dig down a little bit, you realize their fundamental concern is not for the people of Israel. Their fundamental concern for Oaks is for themselves. For them to acknowledge Jesus means they might have to relinquish their power, they might have to relinquish their control, they might actually not get to be in charge of their life anymore. They might lose access to the temple and their positions that they had worked so hard to cultivate. Guys, this is a great reminder that unbelief is never merely about intellectual facts or the fact that we don't have our apologetics in order or, or our, we need to fine, fine-tune and sharpen our our theological arguments to sort of sway people from one side to the other. Now, all that has its place. In fact, in the 80s, growing up on the University of Tennessee campus, I cut my teeth, literally and figuratively, on Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Great, great book. 
Um, recently, they re-released this book, a second edition, last year. That's sort of an updated version of Evidence That Demands a Verdict. So we purchased it, and I plan on going through with our kids some of the pertinent sections of this because, one, it will bolster their faith. It will give them increased confidence in what they believe. It will give them tools to be able to answer critics. It will, it, will give them, it will give them something to grab hold onto when they go into their freshman philosophy class and everything they've ever believed is going to be attacked and undermined. All of that has its place, and I believe it. Yet, we can't forget that conversion is fundamentally about the will. It's fundamentally about the heart. It's fundamentally about saying... I no longer have control of my life. Life is not working for me. Lord, I submit to you. I submit to your rule. I submit to your word. See, if they acknowledge Christ, they're going to have to acknowledge their sin. See, they really wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus told them what was up about themselves. He says, your father is of the devil. You're the, you're, you're, you're spiritually dead. You want to kill me. You have murders from intent. You whitewash tombs. And for them to say, you know, Jesus, you're right. That's called faith. That's called repentance. And all of us know how to play at this game. See, there, there, there's certain ways that God, this isn't, see, this just isn't a text for unbelievers, although there is that. You may be here today and be like, Pastor Paul, there's just too much at stake for me to commit my life to Christ. I'm good. It's going to make claims on me. And that's, that's true. That's very true. But even as Christians, to sometimes admit the truth about ourselves or about what's going on in our lives is so difficult, isn't it? Because it means we're going to have to relinquish control. We're going to have to confess our need. We're going to have to submit ourselves to Christ. See, here in this passage, Jesus is the truth, and they want to murder the truth. Because, understand this, truth is always the enemy of unbelief. Truth is, see, we, we do this to ourselves all the time, don't we? We tell ourselves lies. We deceive ourselves oftentimes because to admit the reality is to submit ourselves to God. So their, their solution to kill Jesus through sinful actions is through, this is point number two, substitution. Let's look at verse 49. This is the scheme that they concoct. Now, verse 49, Caiaphas, you know nothing at all. That's, that's really nice flowery language for you have no idea what you guys are talking about. You guys have lost your minds. Get over it. You're, you're over here just... I was going to say panties in a wad, but getting your robes in a something, and you, you're, 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 you're flummoxed and flabbergasted, and Jesus is out here winning the world, and you can't do anything. This is very simple, what he says. Kill him. Just kill him. After all, it's better for one man to die than for everyone else to die. Hey, it's never, it's never the, the, the many for the one. It's always the one for the many. That's what he's saying. So take him out. This will solve that issue. Now understand something. 
We're reading this 2,000 years later at a, at a sort of an academic distance. But who is saying this? Let's just say, think about this for a minute. Who's saying this? The high priest. The highest religious position in all of Judaism. The man that is supposed to represent God to the people and the people to God. And here he's saying in direct contradiction to the law, to the Old Testament, and everything else, take him out. We don't need a trial. And even when they do one a week later, it's a sham. We don't, we don't need any valid evidence. Remember, they concocted evidence against Jesus. This was murder through and through. And it's just a reminder for us. And this is not the main point of the text, but I want to mention this. Particularly in the church and in religious institutions, but also in politics, we tend to value giftedness above everything else. Giftedness is the highest quality. Giftedness, oratory, the ability to speak, the ability to lead, the ability to make things happen is valued above everything else. But in God's economy, in God's kingdom, he says that is not so. Interesting in 1 Timothy 3, in those 13 or 14 different qualifications for eldership, only one teaching is mentioned as a skill or a gift that an elder must have. All the rest deal with what? Character. Character. See, we always default to to skill. The Bible always defaults to character. Character is always. No, it's not that giftedness is not important or position is not important. It is. It's just that character. Without it, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. That's why when we talk about church leadership, we talk about plurality and multiple elders and more than one voice. This is, this is why. This is why. So Caiaphas says, substitute him. Now look back at verse 50 for a second. I want to point out the language that he used. He actually used, it is better, verse 50, it's better for one, that one man should die. Now, now this phrase, for the people. Sounds like Morgan and Morgan, doesn't it? Okay, for the people. <laughs> They were probably, never mind, never mind. I was, I was going to go way down, should, place I should not, a place I should not go. In the Greek, this actually means something like devoted to death. It's a sacrificial term. You see, substitution was, a, was, a, was, was at the center of Old Testament theology. An eye for an eye, blood for blood, blood of bulls and goats poured out to, to pay the penalty to cover over the sin of, of sinners. And so, so they're very familiar with this idea of substitution. Think about the story of Jonah for a second, how substitution is such a prominent theme. And Jonah's like, throw me overboard because I'm the guilty one here and maybe God will spare you, which, which he did. So, so they're latching onto something crucial. Probably, probably he has in mind this idea of the scapegoat. So, so in the sacrificial system, on Yom Kippur, the, the, the day of atonement, two, two sorts of sacrifices, one where the, where the lamb was slain, blood sprinkled over the altar to cover over, to appease the wrath of God. But then there was the scapegoat. He had a different sort of fate. See, he wasn't sacrificed upon an altar, but his hands, the priest would lay their hands on the scapegoat, and they would, in, in a symbolic act of transferring the guilt and sin to that goat, and they would push the goat outside of the camp. It was to symbolize, and to, to, for it to wander around and die some kind of 
tragic death. It, the, the whole idea was that we are putting the scapegoat outside. That's what, that's what the leaders, that's what Caiaphas is getting at here. See, he's thinking if we devote this man to death, it will save our skin and it will save our nation. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. When John wrote this gospel, which was 60 years probably after this incident, by this time the temple had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been abolished. The Levitical system was, was terminated, done, and by the way, has never been reinstituted to this day. And, and by this time also, not only this, but Gentiles galore would have been flooding into the church. And here as a reader to John's gospel, you're reading about this whole substitution thing and you think, you know what? There actually is something to this substitution thing, but not in the way Caiaphas meant See, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin said, if we substitute one man for the nation, we have physical life. But what John tells us is that in reality, in God's economy, we are substituting one man for the world and getting eternal life. You see, substitution is central to not just Old Testament theology, but New Testament theology. There is, there is a massive movement underfoot, and, you've, and you've, you probably have read or, or even heard of different articles, interviews, newspapers, magazines, books, which say something along the lines of this whole substitution thing is very pagan. It is very, it is, it's ritualistic, it's ancient, it's barbaric. The, the, the death of Jesus wasn't a substitute for us. It was, it was an inspiration. It was a, it was a statement. It was a fill-in-the-blank. Not for John. See, John one twenty nine points us to this from the very beginning when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, Caiaphas, there is a substitution that's going to be happening but it's not what you have in mind. I'm not trying to just save your physical life, Caiaphas, and the physical life of this nation. I'm trying to save the world. I, I, I want to look at the text. I want to gather the children who are scattered abroad. And so we have this paradox that Caiaphas perpetuated the greatest evil in the history of the universe. Stop which resulted in the greatest good in the history of the universe. And we have to stop and say, now, what are we to do with that? What, how are we to think about that? How did, these things fit, fit, how did these things fit together? And some of you are like, oh, no, don't do this, Pastor Paul. Don't go there, right? This is too much controversy. We can't agree. It's irrelevant. This is, the, this is a debate for the theologians, why do we have to go there on this last point about sovereignty? Why? It's very simple, church, because John goes there. See, see John could have cut off this commentary right here and said, we're going to kill him, period. But he doesn't. He goes on to, to say what this means, how we're to think about it. 
And there's going to be a couple of impulses that you're going to have to resist depending on where you are. One, some of you are just like, I just want to stick my fingers in my ears. This is way above my pay grade. Okay. Don't do that. Okay. As Francis Schaeffer said, everyone's a theologian. The question is, are you a good one or are you a bad one? Number two, some of you are going to have to repress your inner philosopher. <laughs> You're going to say, but, 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 but does that mean that Caiaphas, does that mean this, does that mean that? And all we'll say is, let the scriptures speak. Let God speak. Because if not, you will walk away with all sorts of wrong beliefs and assumptions, not only about yourself, but about God. But I think practically, as I read this, as we get to this last point, folks, I find an incredible amount of hope and encouragement from this passage. And I believe God intends for you to find that too. Let's look at verse 51, last point. This is the, the commentary John provides. What does John say about this grand statement of Caiaphas, about sacrificing Jesus for the nation? He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas thought he was in control. He was independent. He was autonomous. He was preserving his power. He was concocting a scheme. He was serving his own agenda. But John tells us in a way that Caiaphas was completely unaware of. Caiaphas was being used unwittingly by God to accomplish God's agenda. Caiaphas was not a robot. Caius is responsible. Caius made his own choices. God, will, he will have to answer for those choices. But what is equally true is that God had a larger, bigger agenda at stake. Now, guys, we talk a lot about God's sovereignty here at Four Oaks. It might be helpful if we just define that for a second. This is a great quote, I think. Sovereignty means that God as the ruler of the universe, is free and has the right to do whatever he wants. Do you believe that? He is not bound or limited by the dictates of his created beings. Further, he is in complete control over everything that happens here on earth. God's will is the final cause of all things. Doug Wilson, um, who's a pastor, theologian in Idaho of all places, recently was diagnosed with, with cancer and he wrote an amazing blog post about, that he entitled, I love this, My Obedient Cancer. And what he talks about is this idea that everything lives in subjection to the will of God. That, God, that according to Ephesians 1.11, God is working all things after the counsel of his will, all things. And that as such, because everything is in obedience to God and his ultimate sovereign purposes, the only question is, are you going to be, are, are you an instrument, a tool that God uses? Or in fact, are you an obedient son? See, Caiaphas is the obedient instrument, the obedient tool 
Jesus is the obedient son. And listen to how Luke describes this in Acts 2. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, hear that? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Just don't run past that. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. In other words, there was sinful men anointed, gathered together to kill Jesus, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There's a lot we could say and we could try to say and explain, but John doesn't go there. And the reason John doesn't go there, he just wants you and I, I think pastorally, experientially, practically, to sit under that and be encouraged. And you may say, well, how was that encouraging, Pastor Paul? I promise you, there, there's a room full of people here today who, who each of you have some sort of Caiaphas moment that you are walking through right now. It's some kind of marriage thing or child thing or the incurable diagnosis. It is some estrangement. It is some kind of loss of job. It is, for some of you, it could be a very, very dark place where you just don't have faith, you can't see, you don't know what's going on. I've sat in small group with people who've said, I, ma- I made a choice 15 years ago that forever altered the course of my life. I feel, like I'm, I feel like I screwed up. I feel like I missed the boat. I feel like I made terrible decisions. What would, what would the Apostle John say to us? I think, it is, I think it is what he says to us. He says, whatever that place is, whatever that Caiaphas moment is for you right now, be rest assured, even though you don't understand it, you may not be able to see it, you may, be able, may not be able to taste it in the way that you want to, God is in the middle of that, actively working for his good pleasure. He's not merely responding. He's not pivoting. He's not merely using. He is literally prophesying through Caiaphas. What's your Caiaphas moment in your life? Because the low point in pastoral ministry for me happened when I was 24 years old. And I did an internship. Um, Susan and I was our first year of marriage. And it was by all... Um, everybody, leadership and myself, were all, and Susan were all agreed it was a horrific experience, okay, in every way. Now, let me just say this. I was dumb, and I was immature, and um, if the internship had not been 12 months limited, I was told that I would have been fired, to which I'm thinking, if you knew the half of it, you would have fired me way before now, okay? So, so this was much of this self-inflicted. But I remember my boss at the end, and, and by the way, who had, who had three girls in the youth group, which is always, okay, dangerous place for your supervisor's children to be, to be in the church, kind of just made this bold pronouncement you know, to Susan and I that I just don't believe your call to the ministry. That was the, that was the statement. And by the way, that, that was his prerogative. That was part of the internship was to gauge calling and get assessment and feedback. That, that wasn't the problem. The problem 
was that he was angry. He was mean. He was cruel. He was, he was vicious. Um, it, was, it, was, it was personal. And I remember that Susan and I were so devastated by that time, we sort of retreated back to Mississippian Seminary with our tail between our legs and ushered in what I could only call four years of just utter confusion and hurt for us. Who am I, God? Am I called? What am I supposed to do? Guys, I graduated from seminary having no idea what I was supposed to do. We came to Tallahassee for me to go to Florida State University as the default position. It was, it was kind of a safe move for us because we didn't have kids, and my wife was very capable and worked, and I'm, th- I'm thinking, why not just pay for some more school while I go to class and she can work, right? So men don't try this at home. But I, I was lost. I really was. Counseling, pastoring, youth. What, what am, God, what am, I, what am I supposed to do? We, we were really hurt. So we come from a Presbyterian background, and we just always thought we'll be back in Tennessee ministering in the Presbyterian church. And we came to a little church that met in a Tupperware warehouse called Four Oaks. It's about 150, 200 people. And we just kind of plopped down, not, not, on, not as staff members, but just as folks like you, and just said, God, we, we need you. 22 years, four kids, three or four different staff positions later, we're here. And I could go back and say, well, gosh, if it not for that detour, and if he hadn't done that, if my boss had had my best interest in mind, we could have this, we could have that. Or, or the eyes of faith say, God, I don't understand it quite, but you were right in the middle of that. And I can assure you, wherever you are today, Four Oaks, God is right in the middle of that. See, there's a Sanhedrin principle at work. You may say, what is that? Here, this group of of leaders, the Sanhedrin, was gathering together this little cabal to kill Jesus. But in reality, what they were doing is that they were setting something in motion that would result in the salvation of the world. That's the sovereignty of God. That's why John goes there. That's why he wants us to have hope and encouragement for whatever, ever Caiaphas moment you find yourself in right now. Because I want to, before we do some baptisms, I just want to read one last section. I, 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 just, this is, I just find this incredibly hopeful. I've been reading through the story of Joseph and his brothers. Remember the guys who shipped him off, wanted to kill him, threw him in a pit, lied about his death, made him a slave in Egypt? Just listen to this for a second, and then I'll pray. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. The the brothers who tried to kill him. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now listen, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And yet God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. And just to make sure 
that we get it. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us the eyes of faith to see, but God. But God, I'm surrounded by Caiaphas. I'm, it's dark. It is despairing. Where are you, God? God, you're right here. You're right in the middle. You're orchestrating all things for our good and your glory. Lord, we're praying that you give us the eyes to see. In your name we pray. Amen.